turn in your Bible to Nehemiah 13. We are starting in the last chapter today. We've been in Nehemiah since January. I don't know if you remember that, but we've been going through Nehemiah for a while. And we are going to be wrapping it up probably next week. Um, but we start in chapter 13 today. If you glance back, and Jason mentioned it, <clears throat> think about chapter 12, right? They were singing. They were dedicating the wall. The choir went out on both sides and kind of met at the temple, and they had this great service. True worship was being reestablished in the city. It was a time to rejoice, and the people did, and it was beautiful. And it ended, chapter 12, on this high note. It was beautiful. It was great. The people were saying, our lives revolve around the Lord not ourselves, right? And it showed in their joy and in their giving and how they how they were providing for the temple ministry. The, some of the things that they committed to do by the covenant in chapter 10, things were looking up. Life was good. Proper structures were put in place. And part of me wishes that the book of Nehemiah just ended at chapter 12. Honestly, I mean, I don't want to change God's word, but part of me wishes that it would just stop there because it was nice. It was a, a resolution, a positive resolution. Or it's like watching a, a sitcom from the 1980s where they were actually decent and things resolved in a positive way at the end of every episode. That was, that was chapter 12. It was great. I'd really rather this book end on a high note, but it kind of doesn't. Chapter 13 exists and it exists for our instruction for God's glory, and it is both heartbreaking in a sense, and it's also encouraging in a sense. So it's it's heartbreaking to see the pervasiveness of sin just rear its ugly head again. Nehemiah, I imagine, thought he'd handled all of this. I thought I talked to you guys. I thought we had this dedication service, and we're all on the same page here. And then not long after we see the same problems start to creep back in. Compromises being made. And so it's it's just heartbreaking to see that. And yet it's encouraging to see two things. Number one, we're not alone in doing the same thing that they did. Because we'll talk a little bit about this, but I imagine we've been there. Like, things are good. Yes, Lord, my life is, I'm satisfied, things are good, and then it's maybe without even noticing, all of a sudden, sin is rearing its ugly head again. We're not alone in that happening to the people of God that happens to, but it's also encouraging, and I would say even more encouraging to see that God's faithfulness endures to his people even when they mess it up, because God is faithful. So if you look back, to chapter 10. You don't have to do that right now, but just make a, a note of it. There were three major points to the covenant that the people committed to do. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah takes those things in reverse order and corrects the problem because guess what? They had broken every point of the covenant. So today we're just going to tackle the first thing that he mentions in verses 1 through 14. And it's going to regard the state of the temple ministry. What was going on in the house of God? And in this section, Nehemiah is going to mention uh, also how the people came to compromise on these things. So let's read these 
verses, and then we'll pray together. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for, for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came for, to Jerusalem. And, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Let's pray. Lord, we're encouraged to know that we're not alone in messing up. But may we take even more encouragement in seeing That even when we mess up, you have sent one who never has. And in sending him, you've given all who obey and listen and turn and repent, place their faith in him. You've given them a way to be free from the burden of sin, to be free from the sting of death. And so, Lord, we rejoice in these things, and yet you have... You have to correct us at times. You have to confront us in our sin. And if you do that work this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit does it and that you would restore, heal, grant forgiveness and repentance today so that we might reflect your love through Jesus Christ that much clearer. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, when you look at the first few verses here, the timeline can seem a little confusing 
because it looks like it happens right after the end of chapter 12. Because it says, on that day, and it kind of calls our attention back. Is he referring to the day when the, the walls were being dedicated? That's kind of what it seems like. But if you look down, remember verse 6, Nehemiah says that he went away for a time. He went back to the king for a while. And so the end of chapter 12, I would say, looks like it coincides with kind of the end of the 12-year governorship that Nehemiah had in the city of Jerusalem. Remember he said back in, I think it was chapter 5, verse 14, that he was governor there for 12 years. So we don't have an exact time frame of what's going on here, but he, he had helped to reestablish proper worship in chapter 12, but some amount of time has passed now when we get to chapter 13 because things are not how he left them. It's pretty obvious we can see that. Chapter 12 was all rejoicing. Chapter 13, he's coming in making these reforms. He's, he's throwing furniture around. This, he did not come to this lightly. This did not happen just overnight. And so we're not told how much time has, has lapsed here. Some some commentators think it could have been just a year. Um, I, I think it seems like it's it's quite a bit more time than that. If you look forward to verse 24 of chapter 13, it says that half of the children in the in the city spoke the language of Ashdod, that was a foreign god, not the one true god, and they could not speak the language of Judah. Okay, so. We, we've got this situation, so in, in this revelation that he gives us in verse 24, he says that there were Jewish men who married women from the outside of their people, which was a breaking of the covenant, which we'll get to next week. And they had children, and these children were not taught even the language of the people of God. And so that doesn't happen in just a year's time. That's going to take a longer amount of time for Nehemiah to leave, for all of this to happen. So it, it could have been, we're, we could be talking 10 years here. We're not sure. I saw any number between 1 and 10 years here. But however long it actually was, the reality and the sad part of this is it was long enough for the people of God to slide into significant compromise in their beliefs and in their practices. We see in verse 1, though, there was some positive things happening Right There was the reading of the Word, the reading of the book of, of Moses, the law. And in their reading, they came across what probably was Deuteronomy chapter 23, which there specifically says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of God. These foreigners who did not honor the, the true, one true God, were not supposed to go in the temple. They were not supposed to go to the assembly. Uh, they represented people whose nations did not recognize or worship God as king. And they, it's, in fact, he mentions them coming out of Egypt. They didn't give them bread or water. They, they made no provision for them. They did not help them at all. In fact, they opposed God's people when they were going to the promised land. Uh, Numbers 24, uh, 22 through 24, is, is the talking about Balaam. If you remember, uh, the, the author here, Nehemiah, he mentions Balaam, how they had tried to hire Balaam. You guys remember that story? These nations tried to hire Balaam to curse the people of God. And in that story, Balaam's donkey starts correcting him and teaching him. 
and then God actually changes course of what this curse was supposed to be, and he blesses the people of God. And in there, there's some messianic prophecy even as well. And so God changed the curse into a blessing, and be, but, but this, these things are to be remembered. The Ammonites, the Moabites, they were not nations who Israelites were supposed to be friendly with. They were not supposed to partner with them. They were not to be a part of God's people in that sense. But I, I do want to point out, though, that in Nehemiah chapter 10, we saw that God actually makes provision for people who weren't Israelites to be a part of his people if they would move away from their false gods and worship the one true God. In chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and here's the important part, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Right, so we, we talked about this back in chapter 10. We won't go over it all again. But I just want us to remember that God made a way for those not born into a Jewish family to be a part of his people. But they had to choose to make his ways their ways and to abandon their own ways. I don't know if you remember, but Ruth was a Moabite. She came from the Moabite people. And yet she is very distinctly listed in the lineage of Jesus himself. But remember what she did. When her husband died and her, and her father died, it was Ruth and Naomi, her, her mother-in-law. And what did she say to Naomi? When Naomi was going to go back to her land, Ruth said, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. See, she gave up the way that she was living. She gave up the ways of the world and attached to the ways of God. And that's how this would happen. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So even those without Jewish heritage are counted as God's people when they separate from the ways of the world and to the ways of God. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, As soon as the people heard the law... They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. I just want to point it out again. I'll probably say it again next week. But what we have here, it's not a racial problem. It's not an ethnic problem. It's a holiness problem. It's an idolatry problem. And you see this throughout Old Testament history, that when they did not put away all of the people that were around them, when they did not devote them to destruction, oftentimes the Lord says, their ways slip in and they pull God's people away from the Lord. This was known to the Lord, obviously, and that's why he said, separate them from you. And so the people did this. They heard the word of the law, they were convicted, and they actually took right steps here. This is These are good things. They, they separated themselves appropriately. And verse 4 now starts to kind of get into the background. Here's the why and the how aspect of this up until this point we've just seen there's a problem it's not all roses and rainbows anymore in jerusalem time has passed and nehemiah comes back and he sees i've got to deal with this all over again and he starts to do this and verse four tells us how it's it's compromise this is the background of the problem some of the people led by the high priest eliashib had compromised. And it really illustrates, I think, how compromising b- 
biblical beliefs and practices has a major impact, not just on your own life, but on the, on the lives of everyone around you. And that goes to the, to the little drop in the water that the kids were talking about this morning with Jason. It might seem like just a small thing. You can toss just a small stone in a, in a calm pool of water and the ripples will reach all the way to the edge. And that's what was going on in Jerusalem. They were compromising their biblical beliefs and practices. We don't know how or when or what happened. We just know that it happened. And Eliashib was part of the problem. He, he was paired up with Tobiah. You guys remember Tobiah, right? An enemy of God. In fact, chapter 2 of Nehemiah lists Tobiah as an Ammonite. One of the, one of those who are specifically told to keep, keep out, to separate from and all through the book. He has revealed himself to be an enemy of God's people. He, he's opposing them. He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's trying to stop what God is doing there. And sadly, we find out that Eliashib, the high priest, is tied to this guy by marriage. Someone who really should have known better, the high priest himself, neglected to properly warn his family about being connected with people who did not worship the one true God. And that's hard. Obviously, this is a, this is a big problem, but that's not the, the, the end of it. Eliashib is compromised so much, he's actually giving, renting maybe even, rooms of the temple of God to a person who hates God's people. He's renting a room, rooms to Tobiah, chambers of the temple, to this guy. These were rooms that uh, you can kind of get a gist from the text here. They were rooms that where they stored materials for offerings, for contributions from the people, for uh, like stuff to be used in the temple, for provisions for the singers and the Levites and the priests and those sorts of people. They had covenanted together back in chapter 10. This was one of the big things. In fact, if you look back at chapter 10, verse 39... They say specifically, they covenant together, and they say, we will not neglect the house of God, the house of our God. Now, not only had they failed to keep this part of the covenant, but now one of their main spiritual leaders was giving this sacred space to an enemy of God, an enemy of Israel. How could he do this, you might be wondering? How could he knowingly do this kind of thing and desecrate the things of God like this? Not even just a normal Israelite would have been allowed to live in these places. Okay, and, they're, and he's giving them to the enemy. It doesn't make sense to this unrepentant Moabite. Now, again, we don't get the whole story here, but it's obvious that at some point, Eliashib compromised. What once was a big deal, you know, the holiness of God and the temple, the aspects of it, was not a big deal anymore. What used to be important was now seemingly of little importance. And I just kind of wonder, is that the same for us sometimes? At some point, probably every one of us has experienced this moment where the things of God are hugely important to us. Yes, our relationship is good. Things are going well. God's word is a priority 
meeting with the church is important to us. Maybe it was a, a special situation, uh, maybe a difficult one, where God moved in an incredible way and you said, Lord, I'm going to commit to do these things and honor you even more again. Maybe it was an unexpected provision that prompted you to kind of rededicate yourself to the Lord. But chances are, without you even realizing it, you slid into compromise, like Eliashib did. Gathering together with believers regularly for worship maybe isn't quite as important as it used to be. Giving to the Lord with a cheerful heart isn't quite as necessary in our eyes anymore. Serving one another isn't as convenient as it once was, and so it's not worth the effort anymore. See, just compromise starts small, just like the pebble in the lake. But the ripple effects get to be huge if we're not careful. If the Lord doesn't confront us with truth. So maybe even without them noticing, Eliashib and the people of Israel were no longer keeping the covenant that they said, we will do this. Now they weren't doing this. Look at verse 7 and 8. These verses indicate that when Nehemiah came back in town, the people and Eliashib, maybe they didn't notice what was going on, but Nehemiah did. And he saw it for what it was. He actually calls what Eliashib was doing evil. He saw it for, for what it was. He saw that it was sin. He says he was very angry. And he, and he threw the furniture out of the chamber. He threw Tobiah's stuff out. Why was he so upset? Had Eliashib done anything to Nehemiah specifically, personally? We're not told so. Had he, had he or the people of Israel uh, or Jerusalem, had they dragged Nehemiah's name through the mud while he was gone? I don't think so. We're not told anything like that. So, so why was he so mad? Why was Nehemiah so volatile, if you will, at this moment? Because of what they'd done. I think the answer is pretty clear. You can probably figure it out. You have already. It's because the house of God had been violated. The things that were set apart to be holy as unto the Lord were even less than commonplace. The enemies of God were using it. They weren't treating the things of God how they ought to. And so Nehemiah, I'd say in a bit of a preview of what Jesus does in the temple, hundreds of years later, he starts throwing stuff around, furniture around. It's like Jesus turned over the tables in the temple. Why was he so angry? It's the same thing. Righteous anger for seeing the house of God, the things of God used for the wrong purpose. Blaspheming, if you will, the name of the Lord. The solution was the same for both of these guys too. They were attempting to reestablish divine order in the house of God. Restore order in the house of God. That was the point for both Nehemiah here and Jesus in the future. Now some people might look at what Nehemiah did and they might say, man, that's not a very Christian-like thing to do. Some people might look at what Jesus does in the temple years later and say, why wasn't he nicer to the money changers, to the lenders? Why was he so angry? That doesn't really sound like something a Christian would do. Have you ever heard any of these kinds of comments? 
Why was Nehemiah so upset that he started throwing things around? Some might even say that he should have been more diplomatic when he was dealing with Tobiah and he should have handled it differently. Maybe Jesus even should have been kinder to the money changers. Quote Pastor David Guzik, he says, Both Jesus and Nehemiah had the wisdom to not confuse love with being nice. (laughs) And they both had the wisdom to know when to take bold action Brothers and sisters, can I just say this this morning? We need this kind of wisdom. We need this kind of boldness when walking through the world today. We need both of these things. We need to understand, as I think Jesus and Nehemiah did, that there is a difference between love and being nice. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we we have a boycott or protest or anything like that, but... Christians need to understand. We need to understand what matters to God, and then we need to guard it with appropriate action. Okay? And I think Nehemiah does that here. This stuff was not good. They had compromised, and this was just an evidence of it. And so he, in very dramatic fashion, starts slinging chairs out of the chamber. And it was an appropriate action. Jesus, in in the temple years later starts turning over tables, doing very similar things. It was an appropriate action. There's more rebuke needed, though. Look at verse 9. It says, Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So the, the temple chambers were cleansed uh, physically by Nehemiah there, but also ceremonially they were cleansed of the stuff that just shouldn't be there. And then efforts were made to correct the things, to put correct things back in the rightful place. It was time for the chambers to be used for their original purpose. I want to think about that concept for just a moment together. Nehemiah was establishing proper order, reestablishing godly worship in what God had designed, And now we're seeing that it was time that they were going to use the chambers for their original purpose. And I can't help but equate some New Testament and Old Testament things together here. The New Testament authors talk about the temple of the Lord being the bodies of Christians, right? Where God's spirit dwells. And so I I just kind of dare ask this question because it's as convicting to me as it probably will be to you. But can we properly be used for God's purposes when we're full of stuff that shouldn't be there. It's like the chambers, full of stuff that shouldn't be there. It couldn't have been used for the proper purpose. Is that what's going on in our lives? Truth is, if you've been saved by the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, your life has a different purpose than it once did. It's not a nor The chamber in the temple was not a normal chamber. Right, It's not just somebody's bedroom. Tobiah was using it that way, but that's not what it was designed to be. When you treat godly things as common things, we get into trouble, just like they did here. And when we don't see the effect of ungodly things put into our lives, we're in trouble. Don't fill up 
your lives with things that are dishonoring to the Lord. Allow the word of God and the conviction of the spirit to clear those things out today even. Clear out the stuff that shouldn't be there so that you can be used by God for your original purpose. And you know what that is. This is, this is the, one of the biggest questions that every person of age comes to ask at some point. Why am I here? What is my purpose? God tells us it's for his glory. You were created for his glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says this very thing. It says that every person that God calls has been formed and made by him and has been created for his own glory. That's your purpose. Are you accomplishing, are you fulfilling that purpose if your lives are filled up with stuff that doesn't need to be there, that shouldn't be there, is keeping you from accomplishing that purpose? Eliashib and the people of God in Jerusalem were not living for God or glorifying him as they should. They weren't living for their true purpose. And so God sends Nehemiah to rebuke them and to set things right. And maybe some of us need to hear this very thing today. So that God, by his grace, through his spirit and the power of his word, would come in and start tossing things out that don't need to be in our lives. Verse 10 tells us Nehemiah wasn't quite finished with this reform. He found out that those who worked in God's house weren't being cared for properly, and so it drove them back to their own fields. They had to go back home to be able to survive, to make a living, because they weren't being taken care of. Remember, what did the people covenant to do? We will take care of the house of the Lord, our God. We will provide for them. They were blowing it. They weren't doing it. And so the people who were supposed to lead them in worship and in sacrifices had to go back home. Worship wasn't looking right again. It was broken. It wasn't correct. In fact, verse 11, Nehemiah just confronts them with this very, I would think, heartbreaking question. Why is the house of God forsaken? He asked them. Why have you allowed the temple to be misused? Why have you allowed the temple ministry to suffer. I think really what he's asking when he asks that question is, why have you let proper worship get so far off track? How's this happened, guys? The purity of God's house had been compromised. The joyful giving to the temple ministry had stopped. It's been forsaken. Then in verse 12 and 13, Nehemiah shows how things are set right. He expects the Levites and the singers to recommit to the work. You're, you're going to be provided for. We've cleared the chambers. We're going to move proper stuff back in there. You'll have what you need. And they can serve the people as they should. So he reorganizes just kind of some practical stuff. He reorganizes the collection, the accounting. He puts trusted people in charge of these things, of the distribution, of the tithes and contributions. Um, and notice something in verse 12 with me, though. When proper worship and right lifestyle is set back on track, things start to change for the better. We're not without hope if that's where we're at. Now that Tobiah was kicked out of the temple chambers, they could properly bring in the things that were supposed to be there. 
and worship could once again begin to happen. And it looks like the people do this step willingly, at least. Nehemiah had led the people to once again set their eyes on the proper worship of God and the kind of lifestyle that corresponds with it. They go together. How we, how we say we worship in our lifestyle go together. And uh, the people here in Jerusalem, they, they couldn't say, well, I love God if they weren't going to obey him properly. Right? They weren't providing for the temple ministry. That's just one of three problems they were running into again. But they, Nehemiah came in and he saw that it was evil. It was wrong of what they were doing. They can't say, I love God and continue doing this sort of thing. And you know what? It's the same for us today. We can't say, I love God when we willingly house junk in our lives. When we willingly continue the repetitive nature of sin. We can't say we love God if we're not obeying him. Jesus says this multiple times, especially in John chapter 14, he says it two or three times. He, he says very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John, again, in 1 John, says it even a little more clearly in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then he goes on to say, his commandments are not burdensome, right? So, Nehemiah, in, in verse 14, he, he prays this prayer. And he asks God that he would remember how he tried to make things right, his effort, and uh, that, he, that God wouldn't forget it, that he, God would not forget Nehemiah's work in getting proper worship reestablished in the temple. And you know what? God didn't forget it. God doesn't forget our efforts. He didn't forget Nehemiah's. He doesn't overlook ours either. Now, to be clear, it's not our efforts that win us the love of God. It's not our efforts even that keep us in his love. It's not our perfect effort that matters. But that your effort and your lifestyle and your worship and your giving and all of these things come as a result of trusting what Christ has already done for you. That's why God remembers. Nehemiah was looking forward to the final evaluation where God judges all things perfectly. He says, God, remember me. Oh my God, remember me. Remember what I've done here. Remember how I've tried to help the people see you and worship you better. He knew there was a day coming when God would judge things perfectly. There's an evaluation coming. And so we have to consider the same kind of thing. How would that evaluation go for me? How would it go for you? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious or fret about facing the Lord when you breathe your last because God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. For all those who believe, their lives are changed. They have a, a new purpose in life. Jesus says it himself in John chapter 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that you were made to display the glory of God? If you set your hope in Christ alone, you don't ever again need to worry if on that final evaluation day, if you'll be good enough. 
Because the truth is, you're not. But if Jesus is, is your Lord, he is. And that's what matters. That's how you can live this life with confidence because Jesus has given you his perfect righteousness. And if today God has used our time together to maybe rebuke some of the compromises in our lives, that we would, in this time of reflection and this week, that we would let the Spirit move in our hearts and start throwing chairs out that shouldn't be there. You know what I mean when I say that? Start clearing house, cleaning it out so that the right things can be put back in place and so that right worship and right lifestyle can be reestablished in our hearts, in our lives. Real forgiveness is waiting. Real repentance is possible and it's there for you in Christ even now. He promises that he will not turn you away when you come to him humbly. So let's pray. Lord, if there are any who are listening this morning who need to cry out in humility and say, Lord, save me from myself. Save me from the things that have been compromised in my life. Lord, you are faithful in your goodness, when we confess our sin to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray that you would do that in hearts this morning. Lord, inevitably, there are true believers here who have just simply compromised in certain areas. Maybe they didn't even see it. Maybe a trusted brother or sister or spouse can come along and be used of you to reveal those things to them. Lord, I pray that we would respond as we're sometimes confronted, I pray that we would respond with a Christ-like attitude in humility. Lord, and that we would repent and move far from those practices. Lord, we thank you that you've sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would move in hearts today. Your redeeming work would be made clear and known and seen and that many might trust you as a result of hearing your word. Lord, we thank you that you will not turn us away. And so I pray that we would come to you humbly now. In Christ's name I pray, amen.